Welcome to the Growth League. I am Diana Kander, a Midwestern mom of two and keynote speaker. And like you, I feel the call to grow. To get us inspired for the week every Monday, I seek out the most remarkable, curious women leaders and uncover their rule for growth. This week's rule from Francoise Brocker is growth requires reflection. This episode is brought to you by Influence & Co. To find out how Influence & Co. can help you create relevant content, get more leads, improve your website's SEO, and drive exposure for your brand, go to influenceandco.com growth. My guest today is Francoise Brocker. After successful stints at Google, where she rose to lead a $16 billion ad sales business, and Square, where she helped take the company public, she joined Pinterest as its first ever chief operating officer in March of 2018. As COO, she increased the advertiser base eightfold, expanded operations to 20 countries, and more than doubled Pinterest revenue to $1.1 billion in less than two years. These achievements, among others, set Pinterest up for its successful IPO in April of 2019. But in the year after the IPO, Francoise was increasingly cut out of meetings with other leaders in the company and given little voice in critical decisions. When Pinterest CEO and founder Ben Silberman asked her if they could connect, she never thought that that would end in her being fired via video call. She was offered a severance package of six months salary suggested that she tell her team that she had decided to leave the company and asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement. But instead, she filed a gender discrimination lawsuit against Pinterest and won $22.5 million. Here's Francoise. Francoise, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You have an entire career outside of Pinterest. It's just a short little blip on the entirety of an incredible career that I, I want to cover. But I, I do have a few questions about what happened and some of your lessons learned as a result. Yes. As you said, you know, it was two years I've been working for over 25. And that was not my proudest moment. <laughs> nor theirs. So <laughs> the stories that talk about what happened in the year after the IPO, you know, you were increasingly cut out. People didn't respect you as much. Did something change? It's something that happened over time. It's a little bit the syndrome of the frog in the water boiling and it stopped boiling and then you realize you're caught and it's too late. But it's not that I didn't see the sign. And I, I think I spend a lot of time documenting what I experienced as a woman at the highest level of an organization as far as discrimination is concerned. It's never like go and grab coffee for me. It's, it's not this type of discrimination at this level. It's much more subtle, but it's nonetheless very insidious. And it's devastating when you are trying to lead. You know, I was leading there half of the organization and you need to make decisions and move forward. And if you are not in the room when the decision is made, it's really hard to do your job. Was it a tough decision to bring about the lawsuit? You know, I didn't start by wanting to bring a lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> but I did start by the idea that once you remove everything from someone, you cannot expect this person will not react to it. 
So if they had let me go in a way that was more differentiated, that I could, could have accepted, like normally you do at this executive level, once you remove everything, you know you are going to tell your story. So that's why the lawsuit came about. But the most important things to me was not that much about the legal proceeding. It was providing my voice and my experience to other people, to them, look, it still exists. We haven't won this one. Still a lot of work has to be done for women to be able to excel at the highest level of organization. You've said in, in quotes about what happened that when men speak out, they get rewarded, but when women speak out, they get fired. What advice would you give to other women about speaking out based on your experience? I would say find friends. Um, I think what I missed the most at Pinterest, which I had, at other company, it's a network of, of women at my level, or even men at my level that were supportive of me as a person and understood that I care about the issue at stake and the company more than I care about myself. What I realized is I had zero friend around me. It's okay to disagree about issue when it's not personal and when it's more like it's not yourself versus the rest of the team. The rest of the team, I realized, was an environment that was extremely unsafe. And I'm always very optimistic and sometimes irrationally optimistic, meaning I don't actually see that it's unsafe to speak. And I can't change myself. So it's hard for me to give advice of women of, please stop talking, because I know I will not follow it. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, in my blog post, I wrote that one of my colleagues came to me and said, I mean, look, if you want to get anything done here, you cannot share what you think. And it's just so fundamentally against the person I am. I also think I don't have all the answer. And for me to formalize with other people, it really helped me sharpen what we should actually be doing. So I will continue to say, women, I think... The right thing is to be better than I was in identifying before you get in, is this an environment where I'm going to thrive? How do you know whether you are working in just a bad work environment or one with discrimination that even warrants a lawsuit? How did you know that? You know this because you realize when you look around you that the people that are in the meeting after the meeting are all men that has been working together for years. And there is such a thing that's a boy club. It does exist. <laughs> and this is what I face. And I was lucky enough that all my career, I never experienced this level of boy club. It's always exists one or another. You know, I went to an engineering school where very few women. So it's not that I'm not used to work in an environment that is a majority of men in the room. But I never felt uh, excluded the way I felt at Pinterest. I feel like they made an argument of why you were terminated and, and that it was, of course, things that you were doing. How did you find it within yourself to say, no, it's not me. It's this toxic environment. How did you have that? You know, I always had and I always tell people, look, I have a span in titanium. So you should know this. <laughs> and I'm very upfront about this. So I'm not perfect. I make mistakes like everybody else. But I'm not mediocre. And, you know, someone asked me, you know, when you think women will be equal, if you wish, I always say, look, find mediocre women at the top. There is none. 
you really have to fight hard all your career to get there. So I believe in myself, right? I just don't take, I have been successful until now, I accomplished great things. And I was not going to let the mediocre crowd tell me I was no good. Well, we had a previous guest on the podcast who talked about knowing when feedback is actually useful versus when, you know, it's self-serving for others. And do you have any other pieces of advice besides the titanium spine, which I think we would all love to develop on how to figure that out? Yeah, but the, every morning you have to wake up and tell yourself, I'm going to build the titanium spine. <laughs> I'm worth <laughs> something. You know, again, worthiness is so important. I'm not perfect, but I'm worth it. It's very, very important to remind yourself this because there is so many opportunities to take you down. I do think feedback is useful. If you tell me I make a bad business decision, I hire the wrong person, I went too early, I can take it because it's very specific to the business. And feedback that is specific to the business, it's actually helpful. But feedback that are highly generic about your character, you just, you know, I will not take it in account. Your your character, or you've mentioned before, your tone, your personality. No, because no man is ever told about their tone and their personality. I think so many people may not even know that they're doing it, you know, and to to hear you talk about it, I think is a good self-check for a lot of people like, hey, double check your performance reviews to make sure <laughs> that you're not talking about these things only. Yeah, and it's always what I told to my team. And this is also was uh, a little bit was in shock is I read all the peer review and I read my manager review of that people. And every time I saw something that I say, I generally, you know, handle this well. I, I call the person, I say, are you sure this is what you meant? You write something, you have the right to rewrite it. And I try to do this to the people I manage because I see the review of their people because I like to go one or two or three sometimes in depth there because it's so important. It's so formative for someone. When you receive a performance review from a manager, like it's once or twice a year, it's everything. It's like, it's not judgment day, but in some cases it is, you know, it's, we all have this good student in us. Like no one's want to go and be told they do a sucky job. So whatever you write to someone, you really have to be careful that it's accurate, it's helpful, and it's free of all bias as much as you can. Everyone has their own bias, but, but, but you have to go through the, the process. And I teach the manager, I say, are you sure you want to write this? And you know, most of the time people say, oh, maybe you're right. That's actually, I should not write this. So I, I think it's important to really try to role model up and down. I love that as an approach. There's a lot going on in the world right now, and more of it than ever seems to be about business. How do workers benefit from the great resignation? Will TikTok change the music industry forever? I'm Nora Ali. And I'm Scott Rogowski. And we host Business Casual, a podcast from Morning Brew that dives into the unexpected business story behind everything. We're bringing you conversations with creators, thinkers, and innovators who can tell you what it all means and why you should care. Listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So when you were at Google, when you started in 2005, and you eventually led their global sales and operations team, people have said that it was a role like Sheryl Sandberg's role in Google before she went to Facebook. Was it 
your abilities or some other interpersonal skills that that got you noticed for these kinds of roles and then helped you become successful at them? What do you think it was? Uh, so two things. First, I was very lucky. I was at, at Google very early. Um, you know, when I joined, it was 2,000 people. And I worked initially in a group that was doing equivalent, it was called Bizarre, so that's what's equivalent of corporate strategy. And you work very close with the executive. So they get to know you. They get to know who you are, how you think, how you work, your work ethic, your insights. And then when Sherry left for Facebook in 2009, she had a large organization. And, you know, basically the executive called me and said, I mean, why, you know, I was managing a 50 people uh, strategy group where when I started, we were five of us. And, um, and I said, why don't you go and take this operational job? They moved me from 50 people to 1,800 at this time when I started. And uh, they said, and if it doesn't work out, you go back to your old job. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and that was kind of nice, you know. Uh, so I'm, I say I'm always very thankful for the opportunity at Google. But when I was in strategy, I worked my butt off for four years and a half, you know. <laughs> like it was my first part of my career at Google was really strategy and I worked very hard at it. I feel like that was a big transition from going from 50 people you oversaw to 1,800. How did you make sure you weren't a mediocre leader of 1,800 people? You know, I have my own intrinsic value is um, I want to be authentic with people and I want to be, as much as I can, provide clarity because there is nothing worse than when you lead organization, when the leader is not clear, no one understands, is trying to read the tea leaf. Um, so I think that's the two things I've really strived for, and I apply it day in and day out. I think what is also important is the consistency. So you may not agree with me, but as long as I'm consistent and until proven completely wrong, we, we work all together, it's actually fine. You need to listen. But once you make a decision and you make sure every stakeholder have, make, have been heard and listened to, then you explain your rationale and you move on. And I was always very keen of this because I knew and I had seen, again, I had seen managers that were incapable of this. And this is the stuff that I resented the most. Managing 50 people is already a lot of people, but how do you even mentally wrap your mind around, now I'm going to manage 1,800 people. I'm not even going to know the names of all the people that I oversee. No, you don't. And this, you have to make peace with it. But at the same time, you have to be open. Meaning, you know, if the, at Google, we hire a bunch of college grad. So I was doing roundtable with a college grad to really understand what was their experience. You know, I had team all over the world, so I spent a lot of time, you know, I was going quarterly to India, which from California is not next door. But I was doing all of this. And at this point, you are not going to pretend you know everyone, but you are going to do enough random checking to make sure your health of the organization is there. And that's my way of doing it. I go, I go, and I did it at Pinterest too. You know, when we are opening office, I go to a country and I do a bunch of round table with people. And you let people tell you what they experience. And again, you don't have to take everything for granted because especially a junior person have a certain view of their work and sometimes have a harder time to put in context. So you do two things. You listen 
and then you give back. So what I did in all these things, I was a big fan of it, is every time I travel, I wrote a trip report that I sent to the whole organization. And in there, I explained everything I learned, and then I put stuff into context. Because sometimes, you know, context is lost. And even if you tell people the context is hard, but then they saw their work into context. They saw the stuff we could solve, the stuff we are going to go through. And that's very important. So I w- I'm a big fan. I, I always do this. Any organization writing the trip report is so important. This is the coolest new thing I've learned about this week. What do you think is powerful about a trip report? Why is it valuable? Everyone wants to be listened to. There is no question. Everyone wants to feel they contribute to the bigger picture, especially when you are junior. And that's very important that they feel this recognition, like my work matters and it's part of a bigger things. And I understand what the bigger things is. And, and that's critical. And there was a point of pride for people. Well, the way that you're talking about writing the trip reports, all of it, it's like a form of reflection. And I think a lot of people think that just doing their job makes them better at it. And, you know, all the research shows otherwise that it's this moment of reflection and thinking about how you could be better or what you did well. That's actually what takes you to the next level. I'm curious how you would reflect on that. Yeah, I believe it's true. It's just it forces you, if you have to write, it forces you to be really focusing on the stuff that matters and it clear up, you know, in this large company, there is so much noise going on. There is always, and in our life, it's become even more noisy, you know, versus when I grew up, my life was very simple. <laughs> but I'm glad I don't grow up on the internet or anything. like right now there is so much noise that it's become so important for people to really reflect, okay, what does matter now and how do I move forward? Whether it's a win or a fail, both cases, by the way, because you know there is these big things in in the culture in tech. Oh, you learn a lot from failure. So you also learn a ton about wins <laughs> because it actually worked. <laughs> so it's important to have this. You know, I also believe in balance. It, it's important to be very balanced and again focus on the stuff that matters. Don't waste time on stuff that doesn't. Okay, speed round. I've got a couple of quick questions for you. First, if you were to write a self-help book, professional-wise, what would it be about? Discovery. Never stop trying to discover new things. Like, never stop. Like, self-help. Understand who you are. But, for example, I know that what I love is learning new things. and will never stop learning new things. Like, I find joy learning new things. You know, Francois... I think a lot of people find joy learning new things. They just don't always allow themselves the time or the space to do it. Okay, what is the biggest oops of your career? Sometime when you messed up, you fell down, whatever it might be, and what did you learn from it? I hate this question, and you're not the first one oh, to no. ask me, because, <laughs> because I don't want to think about my oops. <laughs> I'm too optimistic. I never had any oops. Look, I got fired from Pinterest as a CEO. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> what is something that you strongly believed in your 20s that you feel completely indifferent about now or even the opposite? Oh, I, you know, I grew up as an engineer in an education culture that is very competitive, where it's you and you're going to prove you're smarter than the other one. 
And I do things, uh, what I learned in the U.S., actually, there is much more. And I was miserable. You know, I did some schooling in the U.S. I was miserable my first year uh, because the teamwork was not for me. I was a, <laughs> a very strong individual person. And now there is nothing more that I like is brainstorming with many people. Ah, So well, I came from this, like to, oh, yes, let's brainstorm yeah. <laughs> something fun. <laughs> what is something that you believe very strongly that would make for a fun debate at a dinner party? I think our relationship with truth and authenticity, and it's much broader than just, it's truth about who you are, but also about what you feel, about health, you know, be able to be very truthful. It's not easy, even for people like me that want to be the most authentic person. And there is also side of you you may not like. You know, I laugh that um, I have been competitive, but there is stuff I did as a younger person where I step on people. And, you know, now I'm not proud of it and I would not tell, you know. There are some people I went back and I said, hey, I'm sorry I did this. But some people I did not. I think really having the the clear reality of how much you want to share, how much truthful you want to be is hard. Uh, There's a very powerful reflection. Okay, last question. Do you have a habit that you think contributes to your success, but you think most people don't do this one thing that you do all the time? Uh, I sleep. <laughs> yes, that sounds very healthy. Tell me about your sleep. I, if I don't sleep eight hours a night, I'm nobody. So I'm very, very protective of my sleep. And I will take any occasion to take a nap if I can. <laughs> very cool. Well, Francoise, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. I had fun doing this. You ask good question, and I like the way you talk people of being a little more reflective. Francois' story is amazing. And to help me break down her lesson learned is one of our producers, Taylor Williamson. Taylor, welcome to the show. Thank you. Always happy to be here. Taylor, when I think about the power of reflection, I think about professional athletes who are these individuals that are already at like the top 0.1% of performance in their chosen sport and how they each have a coach that helps them learn. And they don't do that learning on the field. You know, professional athletes for all the time that they spend in a game also spend an equal, if not more time outside of the field, reviewing what happened with their coaches, looking for blind spots, looking for opportunities for reflect. And that kind of reflection is so important to learn, not just for athletes, but for all of us. Now, you're an athlete. Is that right, Taylor? Former. And, you know, uh, the low level. <laughs> I never made it. I never made it past high school athletics. Yes, but the same kind of reflection that you did in high school is just as applicable to your work today. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. I think my work reflection may even be more important than the sport reflection that I had to do. Tell me why. So I think in work, it's very easy to continue along doing the work that you were assigned to do and then moving on to the next project and you know while you're doing it especially if you're in a newer position or a position where you're outside of your comfort zone that you are learning but it's sort of subconscious 
And I think the reflection and sometimes that means like writing down what you actually did for that assignment or for that task that is critical to getting better and to making sure that the learning that you were maybe taking in subconsciously actually sticks. Yeah. And I also think it's just as important to be able to learn and improve as a collective, as a team. So for instance, on the Growth League production team, we have a weekly meeting and we kick it off with a Diana Kander special, which is the TPI, the team process improvement, like 15 minutes that starts off with like, what perspective does anybody have about a process that we have as a team that could be going better? And if we don't put that space at the top of the meetings and open it up for for that kind of conversation, it will never happen. Absolutely. And it has definitely helped us function better as a team. And I know there are things that we may notice as individuals that if you hadn't created the space to bring these maybe areas of weakness up, that they would just fly under the radar. And then it might get to a point where it's actually inhibiting us or our work is suffering because we never addressed it. So we've all reaped the benefits of you introducing TPIs into into our lives. I love it. Well, I would love to hear how our listeners are benefiting from the power of reflection in their own work. So please join me in the Facebook group dedicated to the show, The Growth League, and share how reflecting in your own work has helped you make important improvements. Thank you again to Influence & Co. for sponsoring this show. If you're having trouble scaling your content marketing efforts to see results, I highly recommend having a strategy call with Influence & Co. It's one of the only agencies that I've found that's going to handle your on-site content needs and your PR. Just visit influenceandco.com slash growth to learn more. And with promo code growth, our listeners can access a course that they have for content marketing for 50% off on the site. That's it for this week's episode of The Growth League. Please make sure that you're subscribed to get all the future episodes and leave us a review with how you're liking the show. I am Diana Kander, wishing you a reflective, growth-filled week. The Growth League is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Edie Allard, Adesua Agbanile, and Taylor Williamson. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan, and our editor is Emily Rudder.